Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. We back. Uh, Brian Wilson, Dallas, Texas. We've got Jeff. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> and we got Shiloh. Shiloh's back. Uh, and we are going to be doing a book-by-book reading of Homer's The Iliad. Uh, so we think that we've, we've dabbled with this in the past. I feel like this is probably something that we maybe should have dabbled a little bit more in, but we're, we're here. You know, Good things come to those who wait. So we're going to be doing the entire Iliad, but we're going to be doing it book by book, short episodes. We're going to shoot for about a 20-minute-ish episode for you today. So let's get right into it. Jeff's going to give us an overview of book one and an opening question. Yes, thanks, Brian. So let me read the beginning of book one here, just the first famous uh, first beginning here. The wrath-sing goddess of Peleus' son Achilles, the accursed wrath which brought countless sorrows upon the Achaeans and sent down to Hades many valiant souls of warriors and made the men themselves to be the spoil for dogs and birds of every kind, and thus the will of Zeus was brought to fulfillment. Of this sing from the time when first there parted in strife Atreus' son, lord of men, and noble Achilles." That's how uh, this long poem, the first war poem, begins. And it tells us what book one's supposed to be about, right? We know when the poem is supposed to uh, begin, when the story uh, that the goddess is going to tell is supposed to begin. It's when Atreus' son, Agamemnon, and Achilles start to fight with one another, when they first parted in strife. And by the end of book one, we need things set up so that the will of Zeus is going to be brought to fulfillment. We need uh, the action to be started so that Achilles is no longer willing to fight and uh, the Achaeans, the Greeks, are going to suffer until they regret, uh, and especially Agamemnon regrets, um, having parted with Achilles. So that's the scope of um, book one. And uh, the question I wanted to ask is this. Um, it seems that kind of two things are happening at the same time. We get the story of the fight um, between Agamemnon and Achilles, and we get the story of how the gods become involved in that fight. And it goes up the ranks through the gods all the way to the will of Zeus, which has to support this fight and turn it into something uh, capable of bringing wrath out of Achilles and capable of turning Achilles' wrath into the subject of the first great war poem. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you guys what you thought about this question. Um, why is it human wrath, human anger or rage that is a good subject for a war poem and not, for example, the wrath or rage of the gods? Ooh, that's interesting. I guess to build on that a little bit, why... the So I'm working from the... Uh, Caroline Alexander translation uh, and the the line after that intro you read is which of the gods then set these two together in conflict to fight so I guess like a follow-up question to that is why either in the story or in the choice of the author does oh, let's let's do it in terms of the author why does the author disassociate the actions of or, or the, the rage of the human characters? Why does, why does it separate those, which might be exactly what you asked. Um, why separate those and, and point to the gods as the cause of it instead of the choices made by the human characters? 
Yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing I'm thinking about. It looks like the subject is something that a human being feels, right? Achilles' wrath is the subject. But in order for it to um, be set into motion and to become the kind of subject that we're looking for, the gods have to somehow magnify it, right? And, you know, in some ways it just makes me wonder, well, could I write a, a, a war poem about the wrath of Zeus or the wrath of Apollo or something like that? Isn't that a bigger subject? Isn't it more interesting than some guy named Achilles? So I'm wondering if there's something special about the human perspective. And maybe we could just talk about what Achilles is angry about and why Agamemnon is opposing him and then how the gods somehow magnify this, this conflict. One thing that occurs to me, Jeff, I, I don't know that this is where you're going, but I, I want to ask you the question is um, the character of rage or its qualities would seem to change between um, men and gods based on the fact that men are mortal and gods are not um, mortal. They're immortal. And so I'm just trying to think through um, the richness of the rage of the human beings, both of Achilles' rage and of Agamemnon's, and how that richness is made rich by virtue of the fact that the gods don't die and so there's a sense in which the gods are almost comical their rage is it's almost funny you know that i'm going to strangle you hera it's like a like a like a sitcom from the 70s or something whereas the you know with the <laughs> men there's something real at stake and when this if you're going to take this woman away from me i you know i'm going to take your woman and you know all, all these things that's it's 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 permanent it's lasting it's tangible the resources are finite both emotional and material and i just wonder if that's not uh, if that doesn't make for a better um a higher stakes poem about war i think yeah that's good oh sorry go no, ahead. no i mean i think it's great that we're framing it this way and i think it's a great opening question because and shallow's comment makes a lot of sense to me in terms of skin in the game right like the and I think I think a '70s sitcom is a great example, right? There's there's no real nothing really bad's gonna happen, you know. Like this is gonna be you know 22 minutes of content with a laugh track and a few commercials, and at the end of the day we're gonna hug, right? And that's a lot of the the drama amongst the gods, right? Because they're deathless, like that pops up the deathless gods. So there's not really like you know that much at risk. But there, I think there's something maybe in the, maybe something that they both share to a degree, the humans and the gods, is, is the lack of total control, right? Like even Zeus, who's like, you know, the head dude, head god, like he can still, like they can still kind of get to him. They can still manipulate him. They can still you know, kind of change, maybe not his will, but like, you know, manipulate it a little bit to the individual God's ends. Um, and and we see that with the, the mortal characters as well, but the mortal characters also have, I think, two things. One is significantly higher risk, right? Which is kind of what Shiloh said. But also I think maybe on the human side, there there is something that maybe enrages us as human beings, Right, that that's that is just a natural. If X, then human beings get rage, right? And it seems like there, and we might touch on this a little bit more later. But you know, the idea of piety, or what we call piety, might be in effect here. For me, 
reading this, you know, as a former Marine officer, like I want to choke the shit out of Agamemnon, you know, there, there, you, I don't know if you can have more just bad leadership in the first two books than we're experiencing right now. Right. Cause he's like, oh, okay, I'll do this calcus, you know, but I don't want to. And so I'm going to steal somebody else's stuff, you know? And there, there's few things that I've seen enrage like troops more than a, a leader taking advantage of his position, right? And it's happened to me too. I remember being deployed uh, and finding out we had uh, an, an officer that was not really performing uh, officer type uh, responsibilities well. And I, you know, I, I found out about it. I found out about it. I found out. Well, what set me over the edge was. Um, the fact that he wasn't paying for food at our safe house, (laughs) (laughs) that, that he was just like saying, Oh, I never eat here, so I don't have to. And then watching him eat the entire time I was there. And I was like, Oh no, Oh no, 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 no. Like you're, you're robbing your troops. Um, so yeah, I think, and that, that I think I felt rage. And so I guess my question is something like, are there things that just cause rage in humans that you can't really turn off, but that the God's rage is maybe a little uh, theatrical? Yeah, there, there are some details just to do the God side. I think we're headed in the right direction. We want to home in on, on the human beings and think about maybe ways that mortality might be coming up in the context of the things that, uh, that enrage them. But just some details uh, worth mentioning about the gods, and maybe this is enough to take them off the table for a while. Um, when Apollo learns that his priest is being disrespected by the Greeks, no biggie, right? He just decides to inflict a plague on them, but there's no speech, there's no expression of his rage. And uh, when the priest is finally propitiated, Apollo stops. You know, no brooding, no, I'd like to continue, no, uh, I haven't done enough, right? So it just seems to turn on and off in Apollo's case. Uh, Hera, uh, at the end of book one, gets into a big fight with Zeus, right? As soon as it becomes clear that Zeus is going to do what Thetis uh, has asked on behalf of Achilles. Um, and they, they threaten one another with uh, physical harm. At least Zeus threatens to raise his hand against her. But they sleep together that night, right? Uh, no harm, no foul, right? Nobody's brooding about it. And then Hephaestus, right, who has been permanently maimed uh, by Zeus, um, the other gods laugh at him as he huffs and puffs and goes around uh, serving them. By the way, uh, he's built the houses for all the gods, so they kind of owe him. Um, but they laugh at him, and he doesn't seem terribly put out by it either. So there is a sense in which they're all taking this lightly, even though they can bear grudges. And that might be might be worth looking at in, in subsequent But for now... Uh, Maybe this is a reason then to focus on the humans, and maybe we need to think about a defense of Agamemnon. Uh, is there any argument to be made on his behalf? Well, would it, the argument uh, would be bound up with injustice. In other words, what you, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, if, there's, if Zeus and Hera are sleeping together at the end of the evening, there's no justice or injustice among gods. Or, or I, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just trying to think about this. Whereas if there's a defense of Agamemnon to be made, it, we would have to prove that he had been done, uh, injustice had been done to him, and that this injustice is a sufficient cause for rage, whereas maybe Achilles thinks injustice has been done to him, and that's a sufficient cause for rage. Whereas the gods, 
don't really, you know, get, they don't feel like injustice has been done to them. As you say, Apollo just stops the plague. And Zeus is like, ha ha, it's funny. All right, let's hang out. Or, you know, Hephaestus, everybody laughs and they're not like, you maimed him permanently, deep injustice forever. And so I, I just wonder um, if, if we're going down, the, if we're going to try to figure out what it was, if Agamemnon is, is, uh, has grounds for his complaint, well, could we articulate the character of the injustice that's been done to him and compare it to that which has been done to Achilles? Yeah, I think I can take a stab at that one. <laughs> uh, so here, here's what Agamemnon says, more or less, right? And, and I'm just focusing on the very beginning, right? So he's got this prize. Uh, I take it he chose her first. It's, it's a woman that he seized as a, as a hostage, as a slave, um, from one of the raiding parties the Greeks have been engaging in while they're living outside of Troy and trying to support themselves. And when uh, Calchas comes to him, I'm sorry, when Chrysus comes to him and says, um, you know, I'm a priest of Apollo, uh, I've brought this big ransom, uh, you got to give uh, my daughter back to me, um, Apollo says so. Um, Agamemnon says no, even though all his troops say yes. And I think this is why Brian's great example of the officer who was eating for free at the safe house, essentially robbing his own men, uh, is, is a perfect example, right? All the Greeks say yes, because there's this great reward that they're all going to get, including Agamemnon, if he gives up uh, the girl. And he says no, right? I don't want to do that. Um, and I just wonder whether he's thinking something like this. Uh, my ability to lead you all depends on me being recognized as the first among all of you. And there's no way of recognizing me as first other than giving me the first choice in the spoils, right? Even though there's more uh, that we might get, gold and so on, um, that would not single me out in any way, right? And so it would undermine my capacity to lead the Greeks. And as such, it would harm me to take away. And as such, it would be an injustice. So, so what do you all think about that argument? Here, here I am making the case for Agamemnon. Well, somebody had to do it, so I, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and this might be like a sports talk show where they just like yell at each other, even though they all like each other and just pick something to argue about. So yeah. I'm not going to yell at you, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll dog on Agamemnon some more. Bring it on. Yeah, why, why he's the greatest doesn't really makes sense it's just kind of taken for granted i think to a degree um i mean in terms of troops like we get into the troop numbers in book two and agamemnon does bring the most um right double check me on that guys where Ag yeah absolutely right he he brings a hundred ships of his own more than anybody else individually he also loans 60 ships to yeah. his neighbors so he has 160 of 1186 yeah. ships or slightly more than 10%. So he's, he's you know, firstest with the mostest, which is cool. Um, but I think, you know, and this is probably going to tip my hand a little bit, but um, I, I kind of read the Iliad as a meditation on hierarchy and, and a meditation on this thing that we call power that I don't know if we can define it, but it's something that potentially we recognize as human beings to a degree. And my my hypothesis around that is that you're going to have strife and chaos and and a lot of inner human conflict uh, if the person that should be in charge isn't in charge. And that's why I think that we have this kind of super weird last book 
um, just to kind of jump way out ahead. I'm teasing. I'm teasing all of these episodes. There's 24 episodes, guys. So I'm teasing you to, to stick around for the last one. But in the last book, it's this very surreal and peaceful kind of conversation, you know, uh, between two characters. And Agamemnon is not in the mix at all. And so um, I wonder how much um, this perceived hierarchy of, well, Agamemnon brought the most people, um, so he should be in charge, isn't, doesn't make sense to us as humans, um, that there's something missing there in terms of just ability to lead um, and ability to get done what we're trying to get done as a collective group and how much wiggle room you have. And I mean, we see it with Achilles, right? Right in book one around... 290-ish when, you know, Agamemnon basically says, here's what we're doing. And Achilles is like, yeah, fine. I'm just not working with you anymore, right? And so that I think that's a key thing to think about in terms of the gods and the humans is that the humans, the gods are stuck together, you know? <laughs> like like the, the screenwriters for the gods are not killing off any characters. But in, in the human realm... Uh, our only choice sometimes is either to work with somebody or to not work with somebody. Um, and I think that, you know, in the military, especially you don't necessarily have that, uh, ability to just go, nah, I'm just, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go do something else with somebody else. Right. And so, you know, the emotional stakes are perhaps raised a little bit. And so we're seeing that here where you're in a forced construct to a certain degree of like, you kind of stuck with these folks. You have some latitude, which Achilles claims he has uh, and claims that he wants to exercise. We'll see if that actually pans out. Um, but there is, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just stop there because I feel like I was rambling a little bit. I think that was good. I, I I was wondering. I mean, now that we've you've you've turned the the uh, our attention to Achilles, and I, I'm gonna <laughs> see Jeff if you can do the same thing you did for Agamemnon for Achilles, because that was very helpful. You articulated the character of the injustice, and you determined that it was he is entitled to the first, and if he's no longer receiving the first, then his uh, authority is undermined. And then you drew our attention to the fact that Agamemnon's power lies in his control, uh, his control over masses, whereas Achilles' lies in his individual um, excellence. Um, this strikes me as a very political theme, almost Hobbesian in character. Agamemnon is in control of the Commonwealth. Achilles, although he could kill Agamemnon in a breath, must submit to him. And so I wonder if how does the uh, character of the injustice of Achilles uh, is experiencing differ from that of Agamemnon? Um, and it's a, it seems to be almost a political injustice. He's the best, but he gets the second best every time because of the need for um, uh, this kind of organization coming together, cooperation, um, political hierarchy. Um, what it does, if I can, let me, let, 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 me, let, me ta- let me tackle Achilles real quick because I think you made an interesting point, Shiloh, which is that his individual excellence, you know, should potentially top... Agamemnon's ability to marshal troops, but I don't. What what we're talking about in terms of individual excellence is 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 individual ability to kill people, and so if we frame it that way, of one person can through some, let's call it political maneuvering, get 160 ships together 
uh, and then a fleet of, you know, total 1180 and get them all to move in one direction and to fight for nine years versus the guy that can just kill a lot of people. Like who should be in charge in that situation? You know, which person, which person is clearly the most excellent in a scenario like this and who should be in charge? Like I'm most of the time, I mean, this changes most of the time. I'm very team Achilles and I'm like, Agamemnon's a schmuck. Like he should get fired. Like it's shocking. Somebody hasn't fragged him at this point. Um, but by the same token, like Achilles is not, you know, the best in terms of leadership. Um, but I think that there is something that, that, the troops are identifying and that is built into the story and maybe not as textual as subtextual that the wrong person is in charge. So I don't know. Well, one of the things that puzzles me and is a good thought experiment, but like any thought experiment, you know, it only goes so far because there's no text to back it up. It's speculative is why doesn't Odysseus say anything in this exchange, right? He's the guy who eventually takes, um, Crisis daughter back to him, right? So he carries out the uh, return of the um, prisoner and and kind of ends the wrath of Apollo. Um, why doesn't he say Agamemnon, you should uh, turn her back? And oh, by the way, if you want to take my prize, you can. Right. In other words, um, Odysseus seems to have a sophisticated enough understanding of the demands of leadership, as we'll see in book two in our next episode, um, that he um, should be able to absorb the loss. Right. And so he wouldn't be risking something the way Achilles is risking something. Um, whereas as soon as Achilles sticks his neck out and says it's good for the whole uh, polity, the whole group here, if Agamemnon, you give up your prize, then Agamemnon says, okay, but I'm going to take yours, right? Well, that's that's immediately a problem for Achilles. And I think this points back to, to Shiloh's observation. There's something special about Achilles among human beings because he knows he's going to die soon. And so this uh, the danger of mortality or whatever mortality represents with respect to wrath is a lot stronger uh, for him. Interesting. Well, I think that I think you've teed us off for book two, Jeff. So maybe maybe we should maybe we should wrap episode one right there to leave leave a little cliffhanger ending. Like, what's going on in book two? What's going to happen? Dun, 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 dun. Dun. Um, yeah. So these are short, uh, dear listener. We hope you will enjoy uh, traveling with us along the twenty-four books of the Iliad. Yeah, until then, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, you too. All right, and we'll see you guys uh, next time.